Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving home. Just go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Despite the Biden administration, the Fed, and the media's propaganda to the contrary, it is now official the U.S. economy is in fact in a recession. Now, the recession deniers are continuing to operate under a delusion that the economy is not in recession based on their willingness to redefine what a recession is and the media's willingness to go along with the con. But we got the release of the official GDP statistics on Thursday. And as I have long suspected, they revealed a contraction in the U.S. economy in the second quarter. The official consensus forecast going into that release was that the U.S. economy would have expanded by 0.5% during the second quarter. The actual number was a decline of 0.9, which was very close to the Atlanta Fed GDP now forecast of minus 1.2. And in fact, this is just the original estimate for Q1 GDP. This estimate is going to be revised as additional data comes in. And it's my expectation that those revisions will be downward and that ultimately I believe that Q2 GDP will actually be weaker than the minus 1.2% that the Atlanta Fed was forecasting. But given the fact that the economy contracted by 1.6% during the first quarter, we have now met the technical definition of recession, which is a decline in GDP for two consecutive quarters. Now, of course, in a recession, GDP can decline in more than two consecutive quarters. And in fact, in this recession, I think that is going to be the case. I think Q3 is also going to be negative. But in order to qualify as a recession, the minimum criteria is that you have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. And we have now met the technical definition for what is minimally required to constitute a recession, except instead of accepting the fact that the U.S. economy is in recession, both the Federal Reserve and the Biden administration are refusing to acknowledge reality. And again, the fact that the Fed has adopted the Biden administration's fantasy proves that the Federal Reserve is not independent, but part of the Biden administration. Now, I speculated on my last podcast that the reason that the Biden administration got out in front of this negative GDP number and claimed that two consecutive quarters of falling GDP was not the definition of recession was because they had in fact gotten an advanced look at these numbers and they knew for a fact that the number would be negative And so they wanted to get out in front of this by redefining recession 
in advance. Of course, the fact that we're in recession means that during the entire time when the Biden administration and Fed Chair Powell were talking about the strength of the U.S. economy. Remember, Powell specifically cited the strength of the U.S. economy and not just the strong economy. He was talking about a booming economy, one of the strongest economies in history. It was that strength that was going to render the economy impervious to rate hikes. Powell believed that the reason that we could have this soft landing was that the economy was so strong that it could easily weather the effects of an inflation fight, that higher interest rates were simply going to be shrugged off by this red-hot economy. Well, it turns out that the entire time Powell was talking about how red-hot the economy was, it was in fact ice cold because the recession didn't start at the end of the second quarter. It started at the beginning of the first quarter. We have been in recession the entire year. And so the economy was not strong, it was weak. And remember, I forecast that the US economy would enter recession in the first half of 2022 in 2021. Very few people had that forecast. I was one of the only people that was predicting recession as early as the first half of 2022. But even more important than the fact that I was predicting recession, back then I was also predicting that inflation would get worse. Most people thought inflation had peaked out and that it was transitory. In contrast to that, I said that not only was the economy weak and going to get weaker, but that inflation was strong and was going to keep getting stronger. I was forecasting stagflation, but specifically, I was forecasting the combination of recession and high inflation, not just weak economic growth, but negative economic growth. And that is, in fact, exactly what we have. The U.S. economy is in recession, and the last official inflation numbers that we got showed a year-over-year increase in consumer prices of 9.1%, a 40-year high. Now, all of the people who were claiming that the economy was strong and that there was no recession anywhere in sight are now refusing to admit that we're in recession, even though the evidence is there that we are. They are now redefining recession so they can pretend that we're not in one. But the only thing more amazing to me than the Biden administration or the Fed pretending that a recession is not a recession is the media's willingness to go along with it. Other than Fox News, if you look at how the press is reporting the second quarter decline in GDP, nobody is calling it a recession. Some news stories are saying that this indicates that the economy may be approaching recession, may be getting closer to recession, but nobody is reporting it as an official validation that the economy is in fact already in recession. Now, if Donald Trump were still president and all the facts were identical with respect to GDP, if we had just reported the second consecutive quarter of GDP growth, there is not a news organization in the country that would be reporting this as anything other 
than a recession. Every newspaper, every broadcast news channel would be talking about and writing about this recession. In fact, they would have already labeled it the Trump recession. They would be blaming Donald Trump for the recession that was officially confirmed by two consecutive quarters of falling GDP. After all, that's all a recession is about. It's all about GDP. If the GDP is growing, then you're not in recession. If the GDP is contracting and the contraction spans at least two quarters, you're in recession. That's it. It's got nothing to do with the level of unemployment. There is no specific unemployment rate that qualifies the economy as being in or not in recession. The only qualifying factor relates to GDP. But now, in order to pretend that we're not in recession, the Democrats claim that it has nothing to do with GDP. Well, if a recessions have got nothing to do with falling GDP, then what constitutes a recession? Well, according to the Biden administration and now the media, a recession is a broad-based decline in the economy. Okay, well, isn't that what we've got? As I said in the last podcast, all the evidence supports the fact that we have a broad-based decline. In fact, the broad-based decline is so great that we've had two negative quarters of GDP, which means we're in a recession, but somehow we no longer have an objective standard from which to declare recession. It's now subjective. Somebody officially has to decide that the decline is broad-based enough to constitute a recession. And obviously, if you leave it up to the political party in power, well, they're never going to acknowledge a recession. So I guess we're never going to have one again. There is no doubt in my mind that if Trump were president and we had a second quarter of falling GDP, there's no question that Trump would try to blame the recession on other factors. He may be trying to blame it on Putin or COVID or the sanctions or the Democrats in Congress or any one of a number of things. But there is no way that Donald Trump would be able to deny the fact that we are in fact in recession. Because if Donald Trump tried to do what the Biden administration is in fact not only doing, but getting away with, he would be crucified in the press. Can you imagine how the media would react to Donald Trump trying to redefine recession in order to pretend that we were not in one? There is no way that he could possibly get away with something like that. And so he wouldn't even try. The amazing thing is that Joe Biden knew that he could get away with it. He knew that no matter what he said, the media had his back. And again, that proves the bias in the American media because they are willing to go along with this con to try to pretend that the economy is not in recession to make Joe Biden look good and to help the Democrats get reelected in November. Now, this might, in fact, backfire. This official refusal to acknowledge, I feel your pain coming from Joe Biden, I think is going to backfire because the voters know that the economy's in recession. They don't care what kind of statistics the Biden administration wants to hide behind. In fact, about two weeks before the midterm elections, we're going to get the Q3 GDP numbers. And that number is also going to be negative. So is the Biden administration going to claim that even three consecutive quarters of falling GDP 
Does it mean the economy is in recession? Are they still going to claim that we have a strong economy despite the fact that GDP would have contracted for three quarters in a row? In fact, the main reason that the Biden administration, and in particular Janet Yellen, is claiming that the economy is not in recession is because they are pointing to the strong labor market as evidenced by the low official unemployment rate, which I think is 3.6%, they're claiming that you can't be in recession if the unemployment rate is this low. Well, that's a lie. You can be in recession because the level of unemployment is not part of the definition of recession. Now, yes, of course, in your typical recession, you do have an increase in unemployment And I don't think this recession will be an exception. I believe that the unemployment rate is going to rise sharply as the recession continues and in fact gets worse. But the fact that it hasn't moved up a lot at the beginning of the recession says nothing about whether or not the economy is in fact in recession. As a matter of fact, during the very brutal recession that we had from the fall of 1973 to the spring of 1975, the U.S. economy added jobs in each of the first nine months of that recession, yet the entire period is still considered to have been a very severe recession. And also the official unemployment rate is very misleading. The true unemployment rate is actually a lot higher. A lot of people who are not working and who really are unemployed are not counted in the official statistics. So simply pointing to that level and claiming we have a strong labor market is not accurate. But I don't even believe that the labor market is strong. In fact, if you look at the unemployment claims that continue to come out, we got the weekly unemployment claims on Thursday, the same day that we got the GDP number, and first-time unemployment claims continue to trend higher. Now, officially, the most recent week of new claims showed a decline of 5,000 claims, but that's only because the prior week was upperly revised an additional 10,000 claims. See, the original report was 251,000 claims, which was a pretty big number. Well, now that was revised up to 261,000 claims. So the 256,000 claims for the most recent week was lower than the actual 261,000 from the upward revision, but it was higher than the 251,000 that was originally reported. And in fact, it is higher than the 249,000 that had been forecast. But the more important number, the four-week moving average is now all the way up to 492.25,000. And I believe by next week, that number will be above 250,000 and headed higher. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, 
soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. So the jobless claims numbers, which is a leading indicator, is evidencing a weakening labor market. The unemployment rate is a lagging indicator. And another reason that it's lagging is because a lot of employers are very reluctant to lay off workers, especially if they're optimistic. Because remember, nobody really believed that the U.S. economy was going into recession. And so I think a lot of employers, even though they were seeing some softness in their business, we're still hopeful that we would have this soft landing, we'd avoid recession. And so they were holding on to their workers because it's very expensive to have to fire workers and then hire them back. There's a lot of money involved in training your workers. And if you lay them off, maybe those workers will get other jobs. And so you won't be able to bring them back. You're going to have to hire somebody brand new and then start the training all over again. So employers don't want to fire people unless they're absolutely sure they don't need them. Well, now that we are officially in a recession, I think a lot of employers who have been in denial and who had a lot of false hope that we would avoid recession, I think now that they're faced with the reality that we are in fact in recession and that the recession is going to get worse, I think a lot of employers now are going to finally let go of some workers. I think mass layoffs are in fact coming now that recession is a reality. And so unemployment is going to go up. Just because it hasn't gone up thus far in the recession doesn't mean it's not going to go up as the recession continues. And in fact, as employers start to fire their workers, that in and of itself will make the current recession even worse. But I actually take issue with Janet Yellen and anybody's assessment for that matter of the current labor market as being strong. Because even with the low official unemployment rate, the labor market as it stands today is not strong. In fact, the labor market is extremely weak. We may in fact have one of the weakest labor markets in US history. Now, what makes me say that? If we have such low unemployment, how can I say that we have a weak labor market? Well, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure most workers would agree with my assessment, a strong labor market is a labor market in which workers can demand real pay increases. Labor has the upper hand. Workers can go to their employers and say, I want more money. You've got to give me a raise or I'm going to quit and I'm going to work for somebody else who's going to pay me more money. That would be a strong labor market where workers get real wage increases, where they're able to demand a pay increase that exceeds the rise in consumer prices. 
real increases in wages. Does that describe the current labor market? Absolutely not. Real wages are collapsing, probably by the greatest margins in history. So if workers are being forced to accept real pay cuts and they have no alternative but to accept them, if they can't quit and get a better job, if they have to continue to work the same job for less pay, how does that evidence a strong labor market? In fact, when you have a huge surge in moonlighting, when so many people who have jobs are forced to take a second job or a third job, how does that prove we have a strong labor market? If we really had a strong labor market, one job would be enough. You wouldn't need three jobs. The fact that you need so many jobs to make ends meet is proof that the labor market is weak, not strong. In fact, more proof of just how weak the labor market is right now was revealed when the government released the numbers on personal income and spending for the month of June. Now, when this report originally came out, the markets interpreted as evidencing strength in the economy because the consensus forecast was for an increase of 0.9 in consumer spending and the actual increase ended up being 1.1. So it was a beat. Consumers spent more than the market thought. And in fact, the prior month's number of 0.2 increase was revised to 0.3 increase. But again, this does not evidence strength. These numbers are not adjusted for inflation. The reason that consumers spent more is because they paid more. I think consumers bought less but paid more for what they bought. And so in aggregate, spending went up, but consumers had a lot less to show for what they spent because they actually bought less stuff. And because more of their spending was for food and energy and rent and insurance, less of their spending was for things that they would really like to have bought, but they weren't able to buy because they couldn't afford it. One of the most important things you could do for your family is to make sure they're financially secure in the event that you're not there. Unfortunately, a lot of people end up buying whole life insurance when what they really need is term. Term life insurance allows you to maximize the death benefit and minimize your monthly premiums, allowing you to invest the savings in strategies that can achieve far greater returns than what's available inside whole life policies. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for up to $3 million in coverage or less. There are no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone, a laptop, and a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved. And there are no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. If you change your mind in the first 30 days, you'll get a full refund. Ladder's policies are issued by insurers with long-proven histories of paying claims. And since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the perfect time to cross it off your list. Go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife.com gold, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com gold to see if you're instantly approved. Now, the government admitted that prices did rise by 1% on the month. That, of course, was using the personal consumption expenditure index, 
which Powell claims is the Fed's favorite way to measure inflation. And by the way, the 6.8% year-over-year rise in the PCE was greater than the 6.7% increase that was expected, and it was much greater than the 6.3% year-over-year increase from the prior month. In fact, the 6.8% rise was the biggest year-over-year increase in the PCE since 1982. But as I said on my last podcast, the PCE is a very highly manipulated number. So if the PCE says prices went up by 1%, you better believe they went up by at least 2%. So that really shows you how much real spending is collapsing even as nominal spending is rising. But to prove that the labor market is weak, look at the personal income number. That was supposed to go up by 0.5. It did beat that by going up by 0.6, but still a 0.6% rise in income against a 1% rise in prices shows a 0.4% decline in real incomes. That means wages are falling. In a strong labor market, they would be rising. And again, I'm sure that this is being overstated because inflation is being understated. And by the way, the prior month's number of 0.5 was also revised up to 0.3. But while incomes and spending were up, savings collapsed. The savings rate collapsed all the way down to 5.1%. That's the lowest the savings rate has been since August of 2009. Now, coincidentally, in August of 2009, the U.S. economy was also in a recession. So if the last time the U.S. economy had a savings rate this low, it was in fact in a recession, doesn't it make sense that if the savings rate is this low again, the economy is also in recession? Of course. And in fact, I think the savings rate is going to keep falling. It is going to hit an all-time record low during this recession. And in fact, the collapse in the savings rate is more evidence that we have a weak jobs market. Because if we had a strong labor market, workers would be banking their raises. The strong labor market would allow workers to demand real raises and they would have more money than they needed to cover their bills and they would be putting that extra money in the bank. They would be building up their savings in a strong labor market. It's a weak labor market that forces workers to deplete their savings because they're not able to get raises. In fact, they're being forced to work for pay cuts in this weak labor market. And because their paychecks are not adequate to cover the cost of living, they have to dip into their savings which again is also another example of why the Fed's inflation fight will not work because we're not going to combat inflation unless we get a pickup in the savings rate. People have to save money and not spend it, but they're not doing that. In fact, one of the reasons they're not doing that is because of inflation. Inflation is so eviscerating the value of their paychecks that they have no choice but to tap into their shallow savings pool to try to make ends meet But since the Fed still has negative real interest rates, even though interest rates rose to two and a quarter to two and a half percent with inflation at nine percent, 
you've got negative 6% real interest rates, what idiot is going to save money if they're losing 6% a year? So because the Federal Reserve is still punishing people for saving, they are not saving, they are spending. And because consumers continue to spend and not save, you will still get more upward pressure on prices. Now, we also got the final read on consumer sentiment in June. It was supposed to come out at 51.1, which is a very, very low number, indicating a high degree of pessimism. And the number did come out slightly above estimates at 51.5, but that is still a very low number and in no way is indicative of a strong labor market. In fact, it indicates a weak labor market. Why are workers so pessimistic? Because they're working for lower real wages. Look, even if we had inflation, if wages were rising faster than prices, workers wouldn't be complaining. As long as your real income is going up, it doesn't matter that prices are going up if your wages are going up faster. The problem that workers have is that prices are going up faster than wages, and that's because we have a weak, not a strong labor market. And again, the reason that consumers are so pessimistic is because they are living in a recession. They are not living in some democratic fantasy where the economy is still booming. They are living in the reality of an economic bust. And we got more evidence that that bust is continuing in the third quarter with the release on Friday of the Chicago PMI. It was supposed to come out at 56, which would have matched the 56 read from the prior month. The range of expectations went from a low of 55 to a high of 56.5. The actual number came out all the way down at 52.1. That's about a two-year low in the Chicago PMI. You have to go back to the depths of the COVID shutdown to find a number this low. And in fact, I think before long, that number is going to break the 50 level and have a 40-something handle on it which will clearly confirm that the economy is in recession and that recession has continued into the third quarter. Now, I want to switch gears a bit and talk about some of the legislation that has made it through Congress and will be on President Biden's desk for signature. One piece of legislation is this $79 billion CHIPS Act. Now, first of all, this particular act is completely unconstitutional. There is nothing in the U.S. Constitution that authorizes the U.S. government to pick winners and losers and to decide to invest taxpayer money in particular businesses and hand over that money to industries like the computer chip industry. It doesn't matter if Congress wants to decide that computer chips are a vital industry and wants to invest U.S. taxpayer money in companies that are making those chips. Although I don't see how it's an investment because there's no return to the taxpayer. It's just simply a grant. The U.S. government is giving $50 billion to private companies. It has no constitutional authority to do that. Capital needs to be allocated in the private sector, not the public sector. If computer chips are viable, which of course they are, and if they're necessary, 
then there will be a profit associated with producing those chips. And because private investors are incentivized by profits to make investments, there will be private sector investment in this industry if that is in fact what the country needs. And so the government needs to stay out of it. This is not an example of capitalism. This is an example of socialism. And this is going to fail. We need investments to be directed by private actors, not by politicians. And the other problem is, where is the government going to get the $79 billion? It is going to have to borrow it. It is going to have to run larger deficits. Well, how are these deficits going to be financed? Well, they're likely going to be financed by the Fed through the printing of money. Even though the Fed is still claiming that it's going to shrink its balance sheet, it's going to end up expanding its balance sheet. But even if the Fed doesn't finance the deficits, they have to be financed somehow, which means other private sector investment is going to get crowded out to make this government investment possible. But obviously, if an investment that would have been made in the private sector is crowded out to pay for an investment that the government decides it wants to make, obviously it's not the highest and best use of the money because the highest and best use would be a function of the free market. So if the free market doesn't want to do something, but politicians want to force it to happen anyway, it's because it's not the best use of that capital. Because if it was the best use of capital, the free market would assure that the capital was allocated to that use. But at a time when the government should be cutting back on its spending to reduce deficits and help fight inflation, which it acknowledges is a big problem, the government is passing bills to increase government spending, leading to larger deficits and higher inflation. In fact, the most ironic of all is the Inflation Reduction Act, which is also making its way through Congress and will likely be signed by the president. Now, I've talked about this before. There should be a law that requires truth in legislating because whenever they title a bill something, the opposite is achieved. So for example, if they pass the Tax Simplification Act, it means that taxes are going to get a lot more complicated. They passed the Patriot Act. It was probably one of the most unpatriotic pieces of legislation ever passed. The same will hold true for the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act will increase inflation. Why? Because the act itself simply spends more money. The only act that the government could pass to reduce inflation would be to reduce government spending. They need to cut government spending. That is not what this act is doing. This act will result in more government spending and therefore it will increase, not reduce inflation. Now, there are some additional tax revenues as part of this act. There is an increase in the corporate tax. They do something to close the carrot interest loophole. We'll see if that survives the final vote. You know, the Democrats have tried many times to limit the carrot interest loophole, but they can never do it because the people who benefit from that loophole pay off the politicians not to take it away. And you know, the elections are coming up the midterms, what might be happening here is the Democrats are trying to exact some contributions 
from their billionaire friends. And the way they do that is to threaten to take away this tax break. And then all of a sudden they get a bunch of money and then they eliminate the threat. It's kind of like the mafia with protection money. They threaten to break your legs unless you give them a bunch of money and then you give them the money and they don't break their legs. So they're really protecting you for themselves. And I think that's what's going on with government. Government is threatening the millionaires and the billionaires who run hedge funds by taking away this loophole. But now if the millionaires and billionaires just give them enough money, well, they won't take away the benefits. So we'll see if history repeats. But the problem with the tax increases, the carrot interest notwithstanding, mainly the corporate tax hike, is even if that resulted in smaller deficits, which it won't, especially since the tax increases will be offset by spending increase, but taxes on corporations limit supply, not demand. They result in less capital investment and reduce the supply of goods or services available to buy. That puts more upward pressure on prices. The only way that the government can fight inflation with tax hikes is if those tax hikes are targeted on the middle class because the tax hikes have to reduce demand, not supply. The way you reduce demand is you increase taxes on people who would have spent the money on consumer goods and services. And that's the middle class. Even if you increase taxes on the rich, the chances are that the rich won't cut back their spending. They're going to cut back their saving and investment. So it backfires. So anyone who says that the Inflation Reduction Act will reduce inflation because it's going to shrink budget deficits is wrong. These tax hikes will have no effect on inflation other than to make it worse because they will limit supply. What you need to do is limit demand. And the only way to do that is to raise taxes of people that have a high propensity to spend their money. And that is the middle class and the poor. Now, I am not advocating that the government fight inflation by raising taxes on the middle class and the poor. I would prefer that the government fight inflation by cutting government spending, but that's not on the table. The only thing that the Democrats have put on the table is tax hikes. And I'm pointing out that the only tax hikes that will work in reducing inflation would be tax hikes on the middle class and the poor. But again, the best way to tackle inflation is through spending cuts. But if the only way you're going to do it is through tax increases, then the only people whose taxes that you can increase to be effective are the middle class and the poor. That is the reality that Democrats refuse to acknowledge. Moving forward to the markets, as I expected, the markets reacted positively to the negative news that the U.S. economy was in recession. Now, there's a lot of noise. There were a lot of earnings reports that were coming out, some better, some worse than expected. For example, Amazon's shares were up 10% on Friday. That company beat But look at what happened to Intel. The stock closed down 8.5%. At one point, it was down better than 10%. It was a big miss for Intel. The debacle du jour was Roku. That stock closed down 23%. It was down more at the lows. By the way, Roku is the number three holding in Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF That stock is now down 87% from last year's high. And this is typical of what's going on 
in that sector. And the culprit for Roku's miss is weakness in advertising, which is something I've been talking about for a long time on this podcast. And why is advertising so weak? Because the consumer is so weak. The consumer is too broke to buy, so there's no point in spending money on advertising, convincing somebody who can't afford to buy your products to buy your products, which again is not only evidence that the consumer is weak, but that the labor market is weak. Because the reason the consumer market is weak is because the labor market is too weak for consumers to get raises that exceed the increase in their cost of living. But looking aside the earnings reports, I think the main catalyst for the markets going up over the last couple of days was in fact the unexpected news, whether you want to accept the definition or not, that the U.S. economy is in recession because that complicates the Fed's efforts to continue to raise interest rates and it's higher interest rates that have been a big problem for the markets and the prospect that the Fed will continue to take away the punch bowl if, in fact, the Fed is going to stop doing that and may, in fact, spike the punch bowl again to try to stimulate an economy in recession. Well, that is music to the ears of stock market investors. And that's why if you look at just the two days since we reported negative GDP, that would be Thursday and Friday, the Dow Jones and Russell 2000 are up 2% as a result of that news. The S&P 500 was up 2.7% and the NASDAQ was up 2.8%. So clearly bad news on the economy is good news for stocks. Now I heard a lot of people talking about the fact that the weakening in the economy and supposedly the pullback in inflation. And again, I think inflation's pullback is just temporary. In fact, at one point yesterday, oil prices were up better than $5 a barrel. We got close to $102 a barrel. We did pull back later in the day, back below 100. Oil was only up $2.20. It closed at 98.62. But I think the reprieve that we're getting on inflation is temporary at best. So inflation is not coming down, but the economy is and employment is. And so a PAL pivot is getting closer to a reality. And I heard a lot of discussion of this pivot in the context of comparing it to the Paul Volcker pivot from 1982, because that was the point where the Fed could declare victory in its fight on inflation and was able to start the next easing cycle. The Fed was able to start gradually reducing interest rates after it has successfully battled off inflation. So the point where the Volcker Fed went from hiking interest rates to cutting interest rates is now being described as a Volcker pivot. And analysts are assuming that the markets will react similarly to what is anticipated to be a Powell pivot to the way they reacted to the Volcker pivot. And 1982 was a significant bottom in both the U.S. stock market and the U.S. bond market. And we had a massive bull market that was built off of that base. And so investors are anticipating something similar happening this time, except this time it's completely different. What investors don't seem to understand is when Volcker 
pivoted on inflation. He pivoted in victory. The Volcker Fed was victorious in its fight against inflation. And so the pivot amounted to an acknowledgement of that victory. In contrast, when Powell pivots, it's going to be in defeat. Powell is not going to pivot because he has succeeded in fighting inflation. On the contrary, Powell is going to pivot despite the fact that he has failed to conquer inflation. Inflation is going to win this battle. Volcker won his battle against inflation. Powell is going to lose his battle against inflation. He is going to surrender. Inflation is going to win. The only reason that Powell's going to pivot is to fight off the recession. In fact, what actually will be a depression in order to preempt or react to a financial crisis. That is why Powell is going to be forced into a premature pivot. So this is going to be nothing like the 1982 pivot. The 2022 pivot has much different implications for financial markets and investors had better know the difference because if they don't know the difference, they are going to lose a tremendous amount of money, especially in real terms. This will be especially true when it comes to the U.S. dollar and the gold market. It's because Powell succeeded in ridding the country of inflation that you had a big rally in the dollar and a sell-off in gold. It's going to be because Powell fails to accomplish the same goal that you get a big drop in the dollar and a rally in gold. In fact, the dollar was very weak during the final two days of this week. The dollar index finally closed back below 106. It went off at 105 spot 8. And I think the technical picture is weakening. And as I've been saying, if we get a close below 105, I'll be very confident that the top is in for the dollar. And I think it's likely that we'll see a sub 105 close next week. And of course, while the dollar was weakening, gold was strengthening. The price of gold rose one and a half percent on the week. We closed at 1,767. So a pretty good rally off the low, close to $100 an ounce off that intraday low. Silver had an even better two-day performance. It was up six and a quarter percent. Silver finished the week at $20.35. Strength in gold and silver also translated into strength in the mining stocks. On Thursday and Friday, the GDX, that's the senior producers, rose by 2.9%, so slightly more uh, than the NASDAQ. But that index was still dragged down by Newmont Mining, which continued to fall in the wake of its miss on earnings. But Newmont was not a drag for the GDXJ, which is the junior miners that does not include Newmont. That index rose 5% during those two days, so far exceeding the increase in the NASDAQ. But while foreign exchange and gold traders may finally be beginning to figure it out, the bond investors are still completely clueless. Yields dropped across the board during those two days. In fact, the only yield that is now above 3% is the 30-year treasury, and it's barely above it at 3 spot 01. You have the 12-month at 289, the two-year at 2 spot 88, 
The five-year yield now is all the way down to two spots, six, eight, and the 10-year is two spots, six, five. Again, the bond market has it right about the economy going into recession, but it has it wrong about the recession killing off inflation. It won't. Inflation is going to live on. It's only the bubble economy that's going to get killed off. And again, that is a big distinction between the Volcker pivot in 82 and the Powell pivot that may come as early as 2022. The Volcker pivot was good for the bond market because remember, bonds had been destroyed in the Volcker inflation fight because Volcker had allowed short-term interest rates to rise to 20%. 30-year U.S. government bonds were yielding 13% or more. I forget exactly, but bonds were really cheap. Yields were very high, so bonds were a good buy back then. In contrast, the Fed has barely gotten rates above 2%. I doubt they'll even get to 3%. The yield on a 30-year treasury is only 3%. Hardly a bargain in a world where inflation is still 9%. So when the Fed has to pivot in defeat in its fight against inflation, in contrast to Volcker's pivot in victory, the implications for the bond market are opposite. Instead of bonds being a good investment because you got high yields in an environment of falling inflation, you're going to have bonds as a lousy investment because you're going to be buying something with a very low yield in an environment of high and rising inflation. But just like the Powell pivot will end up being bearish for bonds and the dollar, it is going to be extremely bullish for gold. When Volcker pivoted in 1982, that was really a top in the price of gold. Gold didn't enter a new bull market until around 2002, 20 years later. Volcker put gold into a 20-year bear market with his victorious battle against inflation and his willingness to put the economy through a very severe recession in order to achieve that ends and his willingness to allow the markets to drive interest rates up to 20%. In contrast, Powell is not going to be willing to do any of that. Powell is going to surrender rather than have the economy endure a necessary recession, depression, financial crisis, whatever the case may be, in order to successfully battle inflation because inflation is going to win and the Fed is going to lose. This is going to be the birth of a bull market in gold, not a bear market. And the price of gold is going to take off because it's going to be the only refuge investors have from inflation. Other fiat currencies are not going to be viable alternatives. Neither will Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. Investors are going to choose gold and silver by default as the only viable form of money and hedge against inflation in a world where inflation is running out of control and the Federal Reserve has no politically viable means of containing it. 